the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment. So it will be just me with our very special guest. And when we saw an article about Marianne O'Hara, I said to our producer, Christy Romero, you need to find her. Mm-hmm. And Christy did. And we we're delighted to welcome Marianne O'Hara on board. She is the author most recently of Little Matches, a memoir of finding light in the dark. It's inspired by NineLivesNotes.com, a blog that she kept while her daughter Caitlin was waiting for a lung transplant. Marianne and Caitlin's story has been featured in the New York Times, Time Magazine, the Boston Globe, Psychology Today, and elsewhere. Marianne holds an MFA in creative writing, has taught creative writing at Emerson College, and was an award and, and is author of an award-winning novel, Cascade. And we are delighted, Marianne O'Hara, to welcome you to Caregiver SOS on Air. Thank you so much. I am very happy to be here. Caregiving well, is important to me, so I'm always happy to talk about it. Well, we're delighted to have you on board. And uh, as I was saying to you off the air, I'm so sorry about uh, your daughter passing away. But uh, you mm-hmm. said you're a writer and you were able to use your talent and your knowledge, not only to help you with uh, what was grief, but to help others. Exactly. After Caitlin passed, immediately after the only thing that made me feel remotely better was writing. And I would write on my blog and I would share very frank, honest things. And I would hear from strangers who said that reading my honest talk really helped them deal with their own problems and their own grief. And since I'm a writer, I had never been interested in writing the personal. I was truly a fiction writer. But after after Caitlin's passing, writing the personal seemed like the only kind of writing that mattered. And I wanted to write the book right away. There are some writers who will tell you you can't write from inside grief, but I I knew I needed to. I wanted to make a record of it so that other people could read it and say, yes, this is what it feels like. Tell us about Caitlin. Caitlin was, uh, oh, she was wonderful. I miss her every day. She was really my person in life. She was my only child. She had cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic lung disease. So having another child was always, you know, pulling the roulette wheel a little bit. And uh, she uh, she lived a, a normal life. Uh, one of the I give a lot of talks and one of the talks that I give speaks a lot about invisible illness. Cystic fibrosis is often an invisible illness because Caitlin was beautiful. She looked like anybody else. She lived independently for most of her adult life. Life. She had a career and a boyfriend, a serious boyfriend. 
But her lung function the last years of her life, even though you couldn't tell, was about 30% of normal. She needed oxygen to sleep and to fly and to do to climb stairs, et cetera. It was hard for her. So it, it was an invisible disease is, is good in a way because it lets you live a so-called normal life. But then it's also tricky and, and very hard. And when the time came that she needed oxygen 24-7, she was actually relieved. She said, you know, I used to think, oh, my God, I'll die. I'll never go outside once I need to wear oxygen all the time. And now I feel like at least I look as sick as I really am. Wow. Yeah. I have a friend who has a daughter with cystic fibrosis, and uh, it, it puts tremendous pressure on the family, as you know. Yeah. You, you never know. Like, emergencies can happen overnight, and it's hard to plan the future because oftentimes you end up in the hospital for two weeks instead. How old was she when she passed away? She was 33. She was waiting for a lung transplant for two and a half years. Um, and that's a whole other story, how right. long she had to wait. Um, but yeah, she was. She had just turned 33. Well, one of the things that you took from that experience, uh, you went on to become a, a certified end-of-life doula, yeah. which I think most people have no idea that they exist, you as a doula, and, and what you do. Uh, mm -hmm. So, first of all, let me remind folks who've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host on Special Assignment. And so it is me today with our special guest, Marianne O'Hara, an author, a speaker, a writer who uh, is sharing with us her experiences becoming a certified end-of-life doula from UVM's Lerner College of Medicine. What is an end-of-life doula? An end-of-life doula, exactly. People don't know what they are, generally speaking. But many people are familiar with a birth doula, a support person who helps people come into the world. And an end-of-life doula is at the other end of that life arc and helps people and their families and their loved ones depart at the end of life. And just anything and everything that can be done that the client wants done to help make life a little bit easier. When Caitlin passed, we were not expecting it. And you, I, I speak a lot. I speak a lot to doctors and in the hopes of helping them realize that everyone needs to talk about death with a little more bravery and empathy. We don't do a very good job of that in this country. We don't. And, you know, everyone, there are a lot of people who are trying to change that, and I'm one of them. But, you know, at the end of life, Caitlin, Caitlin, it, it was a, it was a mess in the ICU at the end of life. And the doctors aren't trained to really speak frankly with you. And so everyone gets caught up in that push, push, push to do everything possible to save someone's life at the end. And then suddenly that person is gone and they need that bed in the ICU. And everyone's very empathetic, but you can barely move and you need help. You have to move out of the family room that you've lived in for a month. You need to go back to your apartment. You have to plan a funeral. And that's just after someone has passed. And that's where an end-of-life doula can come in and do any kind of arranging that needs to be done. The training is very extensive, and it covers – it's not a medical position. A lot of people assume that it is, but it is not at all. But the doula can work as the liaison between the family and the hospice team, the medical team, et cetera, and just help everything run more smoothly. And it can include you know, feeding the cat, giving hand massages, help, helping plan the funeral – my favorite part 
of, of this work is helping people write their legacy stories. And that's not something you have to wait until the end of life to do, but it's something that can be important for people and their families at the end of life. I In do fact, so you've much developed a legacy writing workshop. I have, and I really enjoy giving that. As a matter of fact, a woman just emailed me the other day to say that she had created a workshop on her own. And she had asked me for permission to like use my questions and all of that beforehand, but she had given it to about 40 of her um, class. It was like a class reunion kind of thing. And she had given it to about 40 women. And it was just really wonderful because it's not just sitting there talking about, uh, you know, day-to-day activities, uh, which is more oral history, but a legacy story is more about who you really are, what kind of wisdom you would like to pass on at the end of life. So doulas do that. Um, I, I have always been a person who likes to volunteer, especially with people who are not doing well. Um, I find that people at the end of life tend, there's just not as much baloney, you know? And I, after losing Caitlin, I thought, well, I can, I think I, I used to volunteer at a, um, a cancer ward at one of the Boston hospitals. And I thought, I think I'm ready for hospice or for people who are really at end of life, because I've certainly lived through the worst of it myself. And I have such empathy for people who are who are faced with end of life issues, especially when they're not ready for it. As you think about the work of a doula, uh, how do people get referred to you if they aren't aware that you exist? Exactly. Um, they don't. And I and I'm not somebody who does it as full time job at, at all because I'm primarily a writer. So what I, I do, I do voluntarily. However, if someone wants a doula, one of the best places they can go is to inelda.org. And it's a nationwide uh, group of end-of-life doulas, I-N-E-L-D-A.org. And you can they have a whole site there where you can type in find a doula near me. And they've all been trained by the Inelda organization. And you can, you know, they, you can link to their websites, et cetera. And you can read about them and you can interview them. After that New York Times article, a lot of people contacted me through my author website, seeking advice and for, you know, me to come help them. In many cases, I wasn't close enough to help them. But in some cases, I did legacy stories with people. And I referred them to the Anemda website. When you think of end of life, and as you said with Caitlin, you and your husband, Nick, were really not prepared for what was happening. And and then she dies. Uh, What is it you wish you had known and would have done differently? It's interesting, you know, a lung transplant is a very serious surgery, of course, and at the hospital where she was listed, we had to go through a week's worth of appointments when she was being evaluated to make sure that she was a good candidate for transplant. And it wasn't until after she died that I realized that we had never talked about what would happen if transplant didn't happen. For everything else, you know, the all the medical tests and certainly making sure the insurance was there to pay for it all. We had never talked about what would happen if transplant didn't happen. There was no plan beyond hope. And one of the big messages that I like to give to medical people especially is that I think it's really important for medical people to help their patients make a plan for the worst and then hope for the best and make a plan for the worst 
even if the worst isn't even is just a remote glimmer on the horizon. Because once you prepare for the worst, it eases a lot of anxiety. I can tell you that living with my daughter's chronic illness all those years, we lived with chronic anxiety. There's just always an art undercurrent. And anyone who deals with a serious diagnosis knows this. And it can be hard to think what is the worst that can happen. But if someone sits you down and makes you realize, well, this is what being put on life support really looks like. This is what life support can do to your body. It's not pretty. As you think about as you think about that end of life, uh, we'll talk in in just a moment uh, about how you begin that process to get people talking about it and thinking about it. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment today. Our guest is Marianne O'Hara. End of life doula is where she got her Mm -hmm. training at the UVM's Larner College of Medicine. She also is a writer and author, a speaker, and we're delighted to have her on board. Stick with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregivers' stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello. Thanks for sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zorniel, our co-host on Special Assignment. We're talking with Marianne O'Hara. Uh, Marianne is an author, a writer, uh, wrote about uh, the passing of her daughter, Caitlin, and out of that experience uh, became certified as an end-of-life doula. And we're talking about what that experience has been like and what we should know about preparing for death. It's a 100% certainty we're all going to be there, and so it doesn't hurt to think about it. You were suggesting that we need to take a look at uh, the kinds of planning needed before somebody passes, well before we're, we're at that crisis point. And I was thinking about those end-of-life documents uh, mm-hmm. most primary care physicians have their patients fill out. How do you want to uh, handle, uh, do not resuscitate? How do you want to handle feeding tubes? How do you want to handle this? Uh, who's going to be your uh, uh, medical power of attorney, those kinds of things. But that's not what you're really talking about when you talk about end-of-life planning as a doula. Right, exactly. Those documents that you know most of us are familiar with are like signing a lease. They're, they're just legal documents, and they're black and white ink on paper, and they don't seem real. What is real is when you're in the ICU and you hear – a family screaming down the hall because they've just lost a loved one. And the reality of death really hits home and you are amped up on cortisol and adrenaline and you are in no condition really to make important decisions at that point because all you can think is save my loved one, save my loved one. And the and the doctors and the insurance companies, they all get on board at that point and they, they do everything and they pay for everything. Now, I don't want to say that you get rid of hope. There's always a really fine balance between hope 
and realistic expectations. But I think that it's defining what realistic expectations are. That is important because I think that's where the medical teams need to step up and speak honestly to to their patients. Like I know that Caitlin's surgeon, a very, very, a wonderful, wonderful man, he kept the the this false optimism going for so long that I, I was confused and I was afraid to ask really what what's going on here because he kept saying we'll get you transplanted Caitlin we'll get you I have a good feeling about this weekend and I'm thinking well I'm not an expert on transplant he wouldn't say such things unless they were true and then suddenly everything tipped upside down and she was she was dying we, we, they were we have to pull the plug it was just so horrible now what's interesting is that um doctors are not usually trained to have these difficult conversations. But at Northwestern School of Medicine, uh, what is it, the Feinberg? Let me see, I have it here. Yeah, Fein, Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine. They did a study where they used professional actors in these mastery learning course, simulation-based mastery learning course practices to train students to deliver difficult news in an empathic and caring way. And everyone who had that training learned the skills necessary to have those hard conversations. And it can be as simple as understanding how the brain works, like starting a conversation by saying, we're going to have a hard conversation. And that sort of alerts the amygdala to get its panic out of the way. And then the body can calm down a little bit and take in what needs to be heard. A lot of places too, um, palliative care is people associated with end of life, near death, et cetera. I would love to to see palliative care become taken on at prognosis, you know, sorry, taken on at diagnosis, regardless of prognosis, because Caitlin's palliative care experience was that she was, she had serious end of life cystic fibrosis for years. And she's on the transplant list. She's been waiting for two years. And one day a palliative care doc walked in and introduced herself. And Caitlin said it was like the grim reaper walked in. Whereas if that palliative care had come in early on, those kinds of conversations could have happened. Now, there are a lot of palliative care doctors who are working to change that. There are a lot of good minds in the field. And I will say that a lot of them are on social media where they are working. There's a woman in um, Canada, a palliative care doctor. She calls herself Dr. Sammy on TikTok, who talks about end of life issues. In a, in a really easy, comforting way to, to help people prepare. There's someone called Hospice Nurse Julie on TikTok who has over a million followers. And she shares so many comforting stories about end of life, especially the ones that all the hospice nurses know about, people seeing their loved ones. Like there are a lot of really comforting, wonderful stories about end of life. And they're working to take the fear away. And and I'm I'm all for that. So... Did I go off on a tangent there a little bit, Ron? But... No, you didn't go on a tangent. It's interesting. Uh, uh, when we talk about end of life, and, and we've been talking about really the, the relatives, the loved ones, the parents, the brothers, the sisters, the aunts and uncles, what about the patient? Uh, as, a, as an end-of-life doula, do you work with the patient as well? Oh, for, absolutely. It's it's mainly the patient, sitting with the patient, spending time with the patient, 
doing whatever the patient needs. And then the family is, you know, whatever their constellation is around them are other people you interact with, but the, the, it's the client again, it's not a medical position, but it's the client who is, who is the main person. And usually an end of life doula will come in during um, once someone gets that hospice diagnosis, we're going into hospice now, or we've got a, you know, a few weeks left and, and that's when you go in and help them. And it really is individual. One of my nieces heads up a hospice um, care team in Portland, Maine. And before I had done this, she said, I had never heard of an end of life doula. And, you know, now she has, and it's, and it's really helpful for the hospice team too, to have this liaison between the client, their patient and, um, and their team, because they're not always there 24 seven, obviously. You know, it's interesting. We've done a lot of shows on hospice uh, and, uh, one one of the questions that always comes up is why people wait so long to put somebody into hospice. Uh, you can have six months ballpark in hospice, but very often uh, folks don't really make that choice until they have days left for that patient to live. Right. I've I've certainly seen that with my husband's mother. She went. She was in hospice for about a day and a half, and she really liked it. You know, it's really unfortunate. Now, it also depends on, you know, where you are and what your care team is like and what your insurance is like. Unfortunately, it's it's not it's not always easy for people to um, have really good hospice care. It really everything's so different in this country. Medicare will cover hospice. Right. right. What right. about a doula? Does it cover a doula, too, or not? No. And then how are no. they paid? It, and that's another thing where it's either volunteer and a lot of us are volunteer hospice workers, so we're also volunteer doulas, or right. people are paid about $25 an hour, generally speaking, is like a going rate, and the, and the family will pay for that, or the client will pay, pay for that. And again, it's it comes down to, um, that's why I'm such a, I've always been a believer in volunteer work, but huh. not every, people need to earn money, you know, it's not, it, it's very complicated, and it's part of the problem of healthcare in this country, isn't it? Now, for those who are listening who have have no idea the kind of comfort and uh, support that a doula will bring, we've been talking about it and dancing about it. Paint a picture for us of uh, perhaps some clients that you have worked with and how that played out. Well, I think one of the best things is the person comes, the, the doula comes specifically because this person is dying. And so there's an openness between the two, between the client and the doula that feels kind of freeing. Um, There's one person in particular that I'm thinking of who didn't have to pretend, didn't have to pretend for his his kids or his wife, I'm going to make it, this and that, Um, could talk freely about his thoughts about the afterlife and what kind of bird he was going to be when he came back to say hi to me and he'd (laughs) make sure he startled me, and he did. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so it's, it's comforting. In one of the primary um, parts of training that I know they do in all the groups is really say that you you meet the person where they are. They call it holding space. And and it's going in with the doula has no agenda, but going in and just, just letting the client sort of set the tone 
And there's a lot of quiet time that happens, a lot of hand-holding, reading, um, reading favorite books, poems, etc. It's very, a lot of, I, I used to do um, Reiki at Boston Brigham and Women's Hospital on patients there because it gave people comfort. You would put on quiet music, um, really nice, like, let them get started with really nice rhythmic breathing so they can really relax. And then just like putting some, giving them some gentle touch and it just really relaxes and calms people. And people need that kind of peace and calm at the end of life. And one thing I will say is that, and this is very common. um, So many times the patient, uh, the family does not want to talk to the, the dying person. They don't want to talk about, the impending elephant in the room that the person is dying. And so many times the person who's dying just really wants to talk, just wants to be open and honest about it because they know they're dying. That's interesting. They don't want to say what is the obvious you're dying. Yeah. Wow. We are flat out of time for folks who want to learn more about you and your writing. Is there a website they can go to? Yes. Thank you. It's my name. It's maryannohara.com and it's M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-E. O-H-A-R-A dot com. And we can find out about your books and where to get them and what have you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, Marianne O'Hara. Really, really appreciate it. Well, you're doing really wonderful work. Thank you for doing it. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now we know a little bit about end-of-life doulas. And thank you very much uh, to Marianne O'Hara. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. Executive producers for Caregiver SOS On Air are Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron. Our associate producer is Christy Romero. I'm Ron Aaron. We'll see you next week on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com